Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Welcome to Cinema 60. This is another special guest episode that we're doing. Today we have with us Greg Jackson, who is an author. Uh, he has a collection of short stories uh, called Prodigals, quite critically acclaimed, and he's written for The New Yorker and Granta and Harper's, just published a, a pretty major essay of his called Vicious Cycles, Theses on a Philosophy of News. I know Greg because he used to come to my video store, and uh, when, when my store was closing down, uh, he wrote an essay for the LA Times called are we trading happiness for convenience? Where I, I play kind of an example of a mom and pop's video store that no longer exists, uh, and he uh, he created kind of a uh, a lightly fictionalized version of of me for for this piece, and uh, I was uh, you know, very flattered by it. But uh, yeah, I, I figured he owed me one after that, so uh, <laughs> so I invited him on to talk about one of his favorite uh, movies of the '60s. Hi, Greg. Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. Uh, Jenna is with us as well. <laughs> yeah, geez. Hi, Jenna. <laughs> Hi, Jenna. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Uh, I like the idea that my portrait of Bart in the article was lightly fictionalized when it was rigorously documentary, in my view. And uh, no, I didn't. I The interesting thing about that piece was I loved Bart and Greg's so much, the DVD store that Bart ran it in a... Uh, in Brunswick, which is actually my hometown where I was born, um, although I didn't really grow up there that much. But I'd never really spoken to Bart except to basically sometimes exchange a word about a Romare film. Um, so I didn't really know you at that point outside of the proprietor of this amazing DVD rental store. So anyway, it's nice to meet you afterwards. And I feel like, you know, friendship has emerged from that, which is really kind of like a, a nice kind of end to that story. This seems to be your MO, Bart. Yeah. Because I didn't know you either. I, in fact, I actively avoided you, even though you seem like a really cool person, but I was too afraid to talk to you. <laughs> well, that's kind of the portrait that Greg painted of me, too, as this surly, snarky, <laughs> snobby video no. store guy who, who thought his opinions on movies were better than everybody else's. I didn't which, get that from that article. <laughs> I, was um, a little af- I was a little afraid of talking to Bart because he always had a slight look when I was getting movies like, I would get like four to six at a time usually. And he'd kind of look at me like maybe one of these was acceptable, but kind of like <laughs> some of them, he just, there was like a little bit of that look that was kind of like, really? That? I honestly, I can tell you, I never had that reaction to anything you were renting. Any one of the things that you rented would get me excited. Somebody's actually watching some good stuff for a change, but then you'd come up with a stack of like eight of them. And it was, uh, yeah, I should have I should have just uh, cornered you then and there and said, uh, let's be buds. Yeah, we should have. <laughs> um, but it made you seem cool to me, the slightly aloof quality. And, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate 
connoisseurship in all its forms. I don't feel like a movie connoisseur myself, but it's, I actually do kind of value and uh, maybe slightly revere the slightly kind of detached critic or detached um, sort of expert who's been spending years honing his or her taste. Uh, so I, maybe I put you up on that pedestal a little bit, but it was, you know, an impressive pedestal. Thanks. <laughs> well, that's enough about us. We're here to talk about 60s movies. You want to tell us about the movie that you've selected as a, uh, as a favorite from the 60s? Sure. The movie I've selected is Francesco Rossi's Hands Over the City from 1963. This was the first Rossi I've seen, and I actually haven't seen all that many of his, but I'm really interested in films that uh, depict not just what we consider to be political subjects, but depict politics itself, the actual sort of mechanism or intricacies or internal workings of political systems um, and take a kind of systemic or structural view of them. And this is really one of the few movies like that that I've seen that I think does it really well it takes place in Naples, presumably a little before 1963, although around that time. And it basically is looking into real estate and land speculation that is has been corrupted by uh, the kind of influence or marriage of politicians and businessmen, many of whom in this movie are one and the same. Um, so it sort of tells the story of this city council that at the beginning of the movie is right-wing, and they've been diverting the city's development plans partly away from an urban development plan that was established by the government towards areas of land that they have all purchased themselves. So they're redirecting the city's development north into this area where they've bought this land that's undeveloped very cheaply, and um, they're going to build new buildings there and essentially the price per square meter of this land is going to go through the roof. So this is sort of where the story begins and it seems like this has been business as usual for a while. What happens shortly into the movie is that a building collapses on this street Vico Sant'Andrea and it's a building that's right next to where some new construction is going up in sort of a I guess a, a poorer kind of tenement type area but where new fancier buildings are coming up and the new buildings that are coming up are being developed by this guy played by Rod Steiger. He, he's a Italian um, businessman and city council member named Eduardo Notola and it seems like the building that's going up adjacent some maybe some uh, safety precautions some engineering work wasn't quite quite done or quite done correctly and it led to this building collapsing which uh, resulted in some injuries of course some young children got injured one seems to have lost his legs this sort of sparks a scandal and people in the city council use it as an opportunity to launch an investigation into what's been going on in this sort of real estate speculation and that investigation is primarily spearheaded by this uh, leftist communist council member named Davita, 
is actually played by a real council member on uh, the Naples City Council and a communist. And to step back for one second and say that there's an election coming up, and that's part of why this scandal, which maybe would have been relatively routine, seems to take on slightly larger proportions. And the center politicians who are more aligned maybe with the right, they see an opportunity with this election coming up maybe to gain some ground, I think, on the right. And so they agree to support this inquiry into what went wrong with this building collapsing. And the center, the right, and the left are all part of this inquiry. And you start watching all of the fallout of this scandal as the election approaches. Um, I, I, I can say that personally, what you've just described sounds like the most boring movie imaginable. You, <laughs> you say you're, 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 you're drawn to you know the movies about political machinations and the inner workings of, of all this stuff. And I run the other way. You know, I, I, I am not drawn to movies like that at all. And I have to say, uh, in spite of that, I, this movie was extremely engaging. So Greg's description of, of what this movie's about is sounds scary. Don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's easy to watch. Uh, I mean, you should have some interest in politics just to, you know, get something out of it. But it's not quite as intimidating as it sounds. If you want a better recommendation, too, is that the fact that this movie basically joins Ilya Kazan's face in the crowd as being the most relevant old movie about modern day politics. <laughs> There's just so much about this uh, on the political side that is so, so very much in parallel, especially with the whole impeachment uh, yeah. trial with Trump and the current Republican line. That is just uh, shockingly similar. Greg, do you really, are you like a political guy? What do you like about this film? I was wondering if you both would find it really exciting in the way I did when I first watched it, or if you would find it a little boring. I never quite know uh, how other people feel about these political machination-like movies. As you say, Jenna, it's like, it's very relevant to uh, the contemporary world and to um, contemporary politics in the sense of, real estate development and its intersection with politics in New York City, for example, and the you know rise of our current president. Also oh, yeah. in, uh, it's kind of flown a little under the radar, but there's a sort of similar kind of scheme program that's been underway in recent years called Opportunity Zones, which actually bears some not too distant similarity to the scheme that's being uh, enacted in this movie. And that's actually taking place right now in the US. But I would say one thing that I think is maybe makes the movie sound more appealing is just that, first of all, it's very kind of fast paced in its way. It's a, it has a little bit of a kind of thriller meets documentary quality. It really doesn't linger on a lot of exposition and the way that it's told, it, it makes so few gestures towards kind of guiding you or holding your hand through it. It just puts you in the scenes with the people. It moves from one to the next and it asks you to follow what's going on, follow the fallout of everything that's happening. And I think that that's one of the things that generates like a lot of energy and, and dynamism in the storytelling. So I can't say that it's just that I'm always interested in politics. It's also the quality of how it's told, how a story is told and different strategies for how to tell a story that's complex like this. Um, it's also that I did work for a little while as a political journalist when I was younger in DC. I worked for an investigative journalist who is uh, writing books about, at that time, the Bush administration and, and the war on terror. And it was a whole kind of interesting education into both how politics actually works or how these kind of levers of power are operated on the ground, but also how that's then 
you know, transformed into stories or into representations of what's going on for sort of mass consumption or as, you know, different ways of elucidating what this kind of shadowy world is about. So I think it couldn't, for me, just be strictly political or strictly, you know, artistic. It's that I like seeing different ways that the two are brought together and brought to bear on one another. This movie takes a very different approach from some political movies, which is less to ground the movie in the psychology of the individual characters and in a kind of personal investment in their story. The story is the web of interactions and how all these different parts of the city and parts of government sort of fit together. And in that way, it has like a little bit of something like The Wire or maybe even like a Costa Gavras movie, things like that, that I like that kind of look at things from a structural or a systemic point of view. It did feel a bit like a Costa Gavras movie. And, but you're right, yeah, you know nothing about the personal lives of, of any of these people. One of these politicians, the, uh, the, the centrist, I believe, and this is where I get kind of, you know, confused but it's not you know it was easy to put the pieces together in the movie but um he's got a mistress with a little dog that's always hanging around but other than that you get no sense of you know the private lives of any of these characters but it, it works and i it, the the focus on just the politics and the and the you know, the maneuvering is is what makes it interesting and it, it it does manage to bring a whole lot of drama out of that you do have the Davida character, the the leftist, the communist, who's is I guess um, you have to say the 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 director's viewpoint and and the audience. He's you know he he seems to be speaking for the audience for most of the movie, and he's the one that really cares about all the people who are being displaced by the you know the the tenements that are being knocked down and you know everything. I kept waiting for some darker side of Davida to be revealed so that we you know he wasn't an entirely sympathetic character, but no, he he you know to the end he continued to be the most articulate politician there who clearly is not working for his own gain too much. Some of this is maneuvering on his part too, but more so he can help the people. And I appreciated that. I think without the Davida character, it would have been harder to find an end to this movie. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised at how much was packed into this film, considering, as you both said, that it almost actively avoids character work. I mean, for it, it, instead, it, it completely favors this sort of movement of the procedural plot and the like, just looking at political proceeds. And, and yet, the main character, Natola, there's a point in which he has to choose between his own political ambitions and his company, which are his buildings, or turning in his son to basically get jailed for many years. And there's this scene where he's sitting there at his desk and you don't see any expression on his face. You don't know what's happening. And the music, it just goes on for like minutes, <laughs> really loud. And and yet you there's nothing. I mean, you can see the void of, of his complete lack of heart. You don't even have to really guess what he chooses. Uh, and you don't even need to know how he can't, comes to it because the guy's just such a corrupt dirtbag. Which, uh, P.S., just on the as a side note real quick, uh, the score in this movie is by Piero Piccioni, who wrote the score for Cinema 60. Oh, wow. Which, a.k.a. Right. that we use. He didn't write it for us, but we like to think he did. <laughs> no, he did. He did. <laughs> yeah, this was another great score, particularly in that scene. It really jumps out. He, he's also got some really terrible scores. Um, he does. But, but this is a good one. <laughs> but the high points really were uh, Hands Over the City and the Cinema 60 score. Yeah. Those were the high points of his career. <laughs> um, well, a few interesting things about 
stuff you, you guys both just brought up. One is that the scene where he sort of throws his son under the bus is really amazing. It has one moment when he's making the call to do that where he pauses for a moment while he's dialing. And that's almost the only moment when you can see some other side of him that's personal and not just driven by this kind of monster of ambition. It's indicative of how much kind of unspoken exposition there is just in watching the character's body language, watching their slight movements, watching when they put their heads in their hands, watching things that go unspoken, but that are supposed to reveal what we know of their inner lives, which isn't a great amount. And then the other thing about DeVita that I think is worth saying is that, you know, Rossi actually really didn't want this film to be seen as very black and white, um, as kind of a Manichaean good and evil. Although it definitely began with the idea that this real estate speculation was completely transforming the face of the city and it was leaving tons of people out. It was using appropriating government funds for, uh, you know, personal gain and that this was a moment when things were sort of changing and there was hope for a kind of leftist government. So, you know, it has, it is on the side in some sense of DeVita for sure. And it is also dealing with a real sort of graft that was endemic at the time. And in that sense, like it's not pretending that everything is even and equal. But I do think at least watching it a second time, I did start to see, you know, how much he, and I, and I really appreciate this in any sort of art that deals with politics, how much different sorts of complexity are kind of left in the mix. And so, you know, even though the Notola character is pretty despisable, he's given a few moments of defending himself and his position. And even if you don't find them compelling, which I, you know, don't from my own political standpoint, he's not made to be a buffoon in those moments. He, you know, he's given kind of the best defense that he can give by the writers. And then DeVita, who is championing things for the people, has this element where he's kind of feckless, like he's never part of the governing body and he's never actually getting anything done. And there's this moment where it's like, they're, they're looking into how quickly the permitting went through and it's like this went through in three days. It takes a minimum of, you know, usually six months, more like one to two years. And so in that sense, you do have an idea that like maybe the bureaucratic vision of DeVita's wanting everything to be above the board and, you know, following all these rules is also like not possibly responding to a kind of, you know, vast uh, kind of economic transformation that's taking place in the country. Right. And then they have that one part where they say, you know, like, what are you, what are you complaining about three days? It's efficient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, you're always complaining it's not efficient. And now it's efficient because, you know, we had all the backroom deals. Well, and then just to add to that, there's like this centrist character who on the second watching for me now actually struck me maybe as the most important character in some ways, Balsamo, who's this doctor. And he's sort of part of the centrist coalition, but he also has, he's the one who kind of develops or, or, you know, a conscience over the course of the film. And there's this whole kind of drama with him where he's trying to figure out if sort of taking a moral and personal stand is the right thing to do, or if being somewhat expedient and making compromises and trying to work for change from within is the right thing to do. And it's obviously a kind of a classic dilemma. But I guess I'm just saying that the film, even though it seems a little like good guy, bad guy-y, you know, on the surface, I do think actually there's a lot of complexity in all of the different players. And they're all sort of given at least a moment to explain and make their case. And it's not as easy as just saying, you know, let's put DeVita in charge and everything's going to get better. Natola does get to be the 
mouthpiece for sort of the positive view of gentrification, though. I mean, and, and you feel like, I mean, clearly he's out to make a profit and to be, you know, become as powerful as possible. But you do feel like when he gets that moment where he brings DeVita in to see it, you know, for a tour of his new buildings, that he does believe in what he's doing and the you know, bringing the, you know, tearing down the tenements and, and creating these new buildings that have you know, running water and, uh, you know, all, all new amenities is doing a great thing for the city. So you don't feel like Rossi is, is pointing a finger at him. It, it, it seems like a, you know, a genuinely sincere pro-gentrification argument. Yeah, there's that, that great line where he says, you know, he's showing DeVita, like, here's running water, here's a toilet, here's stable electricity. Why why shouldn't we demolish all the buildings that don't have this? Notola never comes across as a caricature. I think he's a, <laughs> I think he's a jerk. But um, he, he always has a sound reason, even if his reasoning ends up being, to me, very much in that sort of Mitt Romney uh, corporations are people to my friend kind of vein, <laughs> which uh, I think about constantly. But um, DeVito's response to him, which I also thought was was really interesting in that scene, was that he says, you're building state-of-the-art buildings, uh, and but you're displacing people in order to build them, and they certainly don't end up living here after you've, you've torn down their building. Uh, and then he also says, I'm not against your buildings, I'm against your methods. He wants you to, I want you to build in accordance to the law. Those are also like just, just fantastic lines that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Greg, I mean, living in New York City, I, I could go on for about 500 years about gentrification <laughs> in New York and, and our, our major problems right now with rent and not just for, you know, apartments, but uh, there's just so much in here that, that it's just so so loudly uh and exactly the same as the issues yeah. that we're currently going through no totally and i you know i'm much more on the davida side of this and i you know i follow the new york city real estate issues closely myself yeah i think i think what's really interesting about that scene and one thing that's very interesting about the scene that i didn't realize until watching it a second time is that it not only comes at the exact halfway point of the movie but it's actually the only scene in which the two main characters natola and davida actually address one another that's the only scene where they like have a conversation and mm. it's at the exact mi midpoint and then they never speak again Natola's point is you know and there's a side of it that Davida agrees with too which is like we have to modernize we have to make better buildings I mean we can't just you know this, these are kind of tenements these aren't like great environments in which people are growing up and Balsamo who's working at the hospital says like these kids are all in here because they're you know sick they're not getting you know, not living in sanitary conditions. And that's why he wanted to be on the uh, committee. So there is even a side of like public health from this guy who's, you know, principled that also knows that these tenements need to go be replaced. But it's like, yeah, but you're replacing it with these for-profit, you know, luxury buildings that are not going to ever be the place where the displaced people ever wind up living. And so it's like, it's kind of an interesting, you know, I just, I like when the real sides of the debate are put side by side. And then you have to ask, is the right version DeVita's idea of you know, we're just going to have better methods? Or is there some side of the kind of bureaucratic sclerosis that you see when they're actually trying to figure out in the inquiry what's going on? Is there some side of that that's also maybe a little bit utopian because this kind of bureaucracies just accrete sort of power and accrete functionaries and wind up you know, having their own problems. And I, I guess I'm just, I'm arguing maybe annoyingly and longly just for the complexity of kind of presenting all these different sides so that 
there's a kind of rich sense of the actual political ground as opposed to just it'd be quite easy i think to really just say okay you know this guy's just a corrupt idiot once we get him out of office like everything's going to be fixed there's a kind of system and structure that absorbs everybody into it in this and they actually maybe this was the part that was most interesting about the whole film for me in the end there's a side of it in which all of them are after power but in the end they're actually all kind of shaped by the possibilities within the system and structure and it's not even clear that they're able to exercise their own power so much as become sort of instruments of these incentives that exist before them mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, even, (laughs) I mean, even some of the most interesting stuff is just on the, you know, and I don't even know the positions of these people. It does, you know, things move by really quickly and it's, it's, you know, hard to keep track of names and, and, um, you know, what, what office these people hold. But, um, but Natola's former friend, uh, who's, uh, pretty deeply entrenched in, in the party is um you know has a scene where he has to tell Natola that we we don't want you running for councilman because of the scandal it gives the party a bad image and just sort of working within that that party system is you know and Natola says no I'm I'm going to keep building my buildings you know and I'm not going to withdraw my name from this race and and uh you know the party's just going to have to deal with that and uh, the the maneuverings within the parties are pretty interesting too and and, it, and it's also interesting how a lot of it does resemble the the american political party system uh in certain ways and other and in other ways it it seems very different and uh and that's and that's sort of where you get some some insight too into not just the you know the the italian bureaucracies but this you know this this party system that they're that they're working with well there's that line where uh one of the uh politicians says to notola basically that you you can't frame this in moral terms it's about the party and like mm-hmm. that and then there's also there's a there's a full-on line that says you investigated me and discovered nothing therefore i'm innocent which is which is also very timely <laughs> but yeah no i i actually i found the the and i'm curious to see what you all thought of the ending of this movie in the sense that i i kind of found it pretty damning i found that that this movie to me though granted there is a lot there's a ton of nuance there's a ton of this uh you know showing you just how the system works but the fact that davida does get sort of in stuck in this almost kafka-esque uh bureaucracy and is sort of inefficient besides being but he's correct he's always i think uh on the moral side of things and yet the other guys are the winners and I thought that this film was really much talking about how, how human morality is just incompatible with capitalism. And uh, it felt to me like, you know, the director was, was you know, angry and, and laying bare that, that blatant corruption and the, that moral turpitude of, of land developers and politicians and, and sort of saying that there are no mistakes, it's all strategy, and that maintaining power is the utmost important thing and followed quickly by profiting and then the support of the party uh, and the peers. And then like the dead last after, you know, a bunch of question marks is support of the, you know, the public. <laughs> yeah, there's a key line in there where um, the party leader says that the, the only sin is losing when they, you know, and it, and it, it does sort of come down to that. You know, politics isn't about morality at all. And, and that is why Davida is the loser. It's because he's can't seem to accept that there is no morality in politics. It was interesting because it felt like there wasn't really anything to to do other than feel terrible. 
<laughs> I wasn't sure that I, I received from this any sort of guidelines on what to do, though there is a, a, a couple of great documentary style shots of a, a communist rally, things like that, which, again, are clearly I, you can tell that there's a degree of pro-communism uh, kind of running through this, but it's not effective. <laughs> So it is kind of, I don't know if it's maybe because I'm, I've already been beat down by the year 2020, but like... Yeah, a lot of things to say about everything you guys just said. I think, you know, I think on the one hand, I see there's this feeling I have of the claustrophobia of everybody in this story. There's this great line Natola has when he's trying to convince Maglioni, who's the right wing head of kind of the right party, uh, that they need to go back to building, even though the investigation's still going on. He wants to get everybody in this tenement evicted. They want to get the buildings condemned and the people evicted. And he says, you know, money isn't like a car that can sit idle in a garage. It's like a horse that has to eat every day. Right. And and there's this there's this quality to him where it's like he's obviously very corrupt and he's obviously enriching himself, but he never seems remotely happy or at peace in the movie. He seems you know, tormented in a sense by this need to uh, kind of keep this momentum going. And then that moment that Bart brought up when Maglioni is telling him, you know, you have to take the fall for this and because uh, the party needs essentially someone to take the fall and we'll still work with you, but you'll just, you know, be a businessman. And he says, you know, he stakes basically all of his chips, his whole career on saying, no, I'm not going to, I need to be the building commissioner he says i'm the only one i can trust and he realizes that you know if he doesn't maintain this power he's going to quickly be on the outside and people are going to deny him permits or go with someone else or not approve his his uh, projects and it's like there is this kind of momentum kind of voracious like self-consuming momentum to power and money in this movie where you do feel like it actually is you know, overtaking and maybe immiserating the people who seem to be benefiting from it. And then you have this hope that kind of there is this sort of centrist possibility. That guy, Luigi D'Angelis, who's the centrist politician, you know, it seems like he's sort of sympathetic. He's in touch with, you know, the kind of cultural treasures of Italy. He seems more reasonable. And then he says all the things you guys just quoted about, you know, basically you have to leave your moral sense uh, at the door when it's politics. There's no personal and moral side. There's just the question of winning and losing. And that's obviously like very, not just relevant, but kind of like terrifyingly resonant in our moment today. I think the one thing that I wonder, and I don't know if either of you thought that this was the case, because I didn't think about it until watching it the second time, but I did wonder, so the very final scene when they're sort of breaking the ground on this new public works project it's in the area i think where they began the movie and it does seem like they're it you know it's under the guise of public works it's not clear exactly um but i actually wonder if that was possibly something that balsamo the centrist who kind of developed a conscience that he was able to extract internally and that his vision of kind of political change has been to kind of work from within that's the lesson he's learned whereas davida's is still to kind of work from without and bring the people into kind of a popular uprising. I mean, I have some vague ideas of how I justified this reading of the movie, but I don't know if that's actually the case. Well, at the beginning of the movie, Natola is, I mean, it's his idea to build there, right? He's the one who wants to. This is a, you know, part of the, the grand project that doesn't involve tearing down tenements. 
And I didn't feel like that, or at least, you know, the first time through, it didn't feel like that was a compromise, The where they were building there. It, it felt like it was just full circle. That's that's all it felt like to me. The reason I raise this possibility is that there is a scene where Balsamo gets upset because essentially they've been using public uh, lands, lands that have been zoned for public use, they've been selling them to private interests. And he says those could be, could have been, you know, a hospital or a park or these other things for public use. And then towards the end of the movie, when they're having the kind of denouement in the chamber right before the final scene, Balsamo and a small group of centrists break away to join DeVita in calling for a new inquiry into this corruption. And I did sort of wonder if it was supposed to be something other than public work, something more for profit, and that maybe this was like the kind of shady compromise, but also like slightly taking one little baby step towards actually using the public lands or the public funds for the public good, and that maybe it was like a vision of, you know, change from within versus change from without. Um, But maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. No, I actually, I I can see that now. I sort of missed that part of your point, but you're, you're right. And I missed that it was public works doing the 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 building totally so yeah now now i see what you're saying i'm way too down in the weeds so having <laughs> seen this a second time yeah. it's like, <laughs> what did you guys think i feel like you you both have such a you've i mean you've been doing so much on 60 cinema and uh you know, have such a deep knowledge of this era like how do you think about this movie both either subject matter wise or like formally in the moment that it came out and in relationship to like other movies that were being made at the time. Well, it's so clearly a part of the Il Boom movies, the Italian economic miracle that was happening in the early 60s, which is, uh, you know, with and then La Dolce Vita coming out in 1960 being the sort of forerunner of those films that then you get uh, Il Sorpasso and a movie called Il Boom. <laughs> uh, and, and multiple sort of dark, uh, satirical takes on the downsides of capitalism, which to me, this is uh, definitely way more documentary style and, and way different in its actual filmmaking style than this, those other films, but very much in the spirit of them and certainly in the right time frame. Um, so I think it's very interesting that there were so many films that came out that you know, at a time where you have all this economic prosperity in, in Italy, that they have all of these filmmakers who are totally tearing it down. <laughs> but for a movie like this, it's become so clear as to the reason why is that, you know, they don't believe that, that you have politicians have everyone's best interests at heart, which this movie very painstakingly tells you process by process. No, they absolutely do not. And here's, here's how they get to that from, from here. And, and, uh, Draws you a little graph and everything. Yeah, and, and stylistically, it, it seems like Rossi is kind of on his own at this point in, in Italian cinema. He's sort of holding on to the, the whole neorealist aesthetics where, you know, just giving you an, an almost documentary style film where most of the other Italian uh, filmmakers, you know, your Antonioni's, your Fellini's have gotten into, you know, really a tourist, you know, individual expression, much more stylized and formalistic uh, films. Or on the other hand, you've got your, uh, you know, Dino Ricci's and and Jeremy's who are making these Commedia all'Italiana movies that are these these dark comedies that just got darker and darker. It started in the 50s and just got, the the satire got darker as as the 60s progressed. But, But Rossi seems to be really on his own here. You know, it's not neorealism in the style of, like, De Sico and Rossellini in, in 
terms of like you know you're not following a single character and sort of uh, experiencing real life through through their perspective in a way that a lot of the neorealist movies are but you still this documentary style this this verite style that that Rossi uses is is still very connected to the that that earlier Italian style that a lot of the other filmmakers of the time were not still doing I agree with you Bart for sure this movie is on its own this is a really it's a strange film quite frankly I liked it it was great <laughs> but it, it stylistically is so so bizarre and yet it does have that kind of sense of humor I mean it makes me think of um that there's that scene where they're uh deep into the inquiry and they're asking um really reasonable questions about whether the wall for the building that collapsed was connected to another building or if it was a freestanding wall uh you know and building <laughs> right and and it's ridiculous i mean number one it takes them about five minutes to just establish that question even though it's really clear but but the guys who are the experts and are, are working there don't seem to understand what they're being asked and then finally the guy this guy basically says like look this is like a map on like a one to like two thousand scale and the pencil lead isn't thin enough to show if they're connecting or not and, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of like gives this really convoluted statement as if that's a really reasonable reply in order for him to get off scot-free. And yet the, the first question that gets asked after this like long, dumb explanation is, so how did you know which one to demolish? And the guy just like there's this good, great comedic pause where he says, that's not within our jurisdiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like the standards and safety department. He's like, that's not our business. Yeah, that was amazing. It's like our, our pencils are only a millimeter thick and the walls would have to be 0.5 millimeters. So <laughs> we don't know. Like there's something definitely a little bleak about the possibility that feels like for sort of change or for nobility within this political system. But I think there's something very like human about Rossi's sensibility and humanistic that does allow for people to kind of be winning or charming or just human in moments when they're also not great people or the system's not working very well. There's like one little thing I noticed this time, which is there's a moment in the hospital when Balsamo's making the rounds and he gets to this kid, you know, who's been sick and bad. And he's like, oh, always with the cards and the kid's playing with the cards. And it's like the only time you ever see the adults on the city council doing anything that seems like for themselves or their pleasure is just like gambling and playing cards. And it's like, there's no real sense of what all of this sound and fury is for except to kind of like play a children's game and i feel like there are things like that that just they're kind of funny they're kind of human but yeah they, they kind of for me alleviate the, what, what could be in like a more severe cultural tradition could be like a much darker overall ambiance of a film that is presenting something sort of dark. Well anytime you deal with the uh, Italian bureaucracy in a movie it has to turn into something of a comedy. It's <laughs> There's a great movie that just came out called The Traitor which is directed by uh, Marco uh, Bellocchio and and it's about uh, the the fall of the mafia but the best scenes in that movie are the courtroom scenes because it's just absolutely wild to see how the system worked. I mean, it's right. completely ridiculous. And then on top of it, I quite frankly, I think there's something, especially for, for people who've lived in New York at least, or, you know, or Italy, of course, obviously, but there's so much, uh, you know, like in, in just hand gestures and in deliveries, like just the way people say things and the way that there's like the, an acceptance of some really brutal truth with, like this mix of like, eh, what are you going to do about it? That is just right. so great. Or all the right wing like politicians when they say like your hands are dirty and these are all like a lot of the actors are actually 
the right wing politicians right. on the real city council and they're all of their hands up and they're like, our hands are clean. Our hands are clean. I mean, it's so able to laugh at itself in a way and the people in it in a weird way are able to laugh at themselves. You know, I mean, it's very Italian in that sense. And it kind of is, I don't know, just maybe that like sense of absurdity just relieves a little bit of that kind of foreboding darkness it's also worth mentioning that uh, Jenna was talking about it, that Rossi's, he did three movies, I think, before Hands Over the City, but two of them, the first one, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of, was about the Camorra in Naples, which is like the organized crime uh, syndicate. And then the third one, right before Hands Over the City, was about, it was called Salvatore Giuliano, and it was about more or less kind of the mafia and different kind of political mafia organization ties across Sicily. And there's a way in which it's like all of these movies through Hands Over the City are mapping different types of quasi-criminal and quasi-governmental interactions and organizations. And I just kind of love that, like, mapping the kind of web, like, you know, up on like a pinboard, you know, looking at all these different players and how these systems work. And it's like, this is the one where it's not quite criminal but it's like it's only not criminal because the people involved are the people making the laws <laughs> and so like they've made their criminal enterprise legal essentially well in all in all of them it's a focus on these men who just have this lust for power and money you know there's only so much of that that i personally want to see you know i'm, I'm not the biggest fan of, of gangster movies in general but you know this power lust is uh I, I have to say that it's hands hands over the city is not a movie I probably will return to just because this theme of, of power lust is not anything that I connect to at all. I think that's part of why I, I find a lot of these political movies a little hard to watch is because it is there's there is a strong connection between politics and you know gangsterism, uh, organized crime, and and just this this lust for power, and it sort of makes sense that this is Rossi's follow up to a couple of you know actual mafia movies. I found this movie to be kind of cathartic in that way, though. I enjoyed everything being laid bare. I enjoyed seeing people very just blatantly making statements about how morality doesn't matter, and <laughs> and then turning around and being a servant of the people and. You know, I also I, I enjoyed all of the the sarcasm and anger that came from the left in this movie that was also just as ineffective and, and basically did nothing except to make people uh, sour on on making the centrist sour on ever even speaking to the left and, and trying to work their way uh, into helping the right. But with with within reason, as they would say, and there's just something about sort of seeing everything laid out like that that even though this isn't normally the type of film that I would go for based primarily on the fact that I really like character <laughs> and there really is this none of that in this and yet I just really enjoyed there was something I don't know there was something that really gripped me about this that it wasn't even emotional as much as it was just like I guess intellectual stimulation <laughs> Though I will say that I immediately recommended this movie to my cousin who is a uh, urban planner in Detroit <laughs> and sees a whole bunch of stuff that makes him go absolutely crazy. But Well, this was apparently really, I think, embraced by uh, architects and urban planners in Italy at the time. And it, I think it's worth saying, you know, even if the movie itself has like this 
lust for power or slight kind of like claustrophobia or hopelessness. It comes out in a moment when there, there's like finally for the first time in the post-war years a real sense that the left is emerging. There hasn't been much of a left before. The kind of communist or socialist party is pretty newly in power. There's like a thaw with the Soviet Union apparently that happens around this time and uh, there's a second Vatican and it starts in 1962. And so there's like a real sense behind this movie of things suddenly changing. And that speech that Davida gives at the very end when he's talking about how, you know, things are changing, people are catching on. There's always a time when things are changing, when the people in power do everything they can to grab as much as they can. But that's because they know kind of their time is up. There was actually, after Salvatore Giuliano, the year before, after that movie came out, they started a commission in Sicily to look into the mafia's influence in politics there. And I think there really was a sense and a hope that movies like this at the time could spark that change by kind of educating the public into a real awareness of what was going on, not just the idea of, oh, politicians are corrupt, they're all like corrupt and, you know, drain the swamp. It's like, no, let's actually look at what corruption is and how it works and let's bring that to light. And I think there's something about the kind of like bringing it all to light that as you say, Jenna, like for me, it's cathartic. I'm like, this is truth, you know? And maybe some of the truth is like hard truth, but like the more of it is in the public view, the more it feels to me, you know, we're at least like all looking at the same thing together and there's something hopeful in that. That's a great way to put it actually. <laughs> I mean, maybe that is the hope actually. That's the hope I couldn't really find in the end of this. Though I, I think that after this, there was a leftist socialist prime minister was Aldo Moro, right? And I we see some of his uh, supporters in this film. So and he, then he had a terrible end, but that that's another story to be told another time. But yeah, I know maybe that's that is a big part of it is that putting everything on an on an equal ground and letting people speak their piece, uh, not trying to demonize very specifically though people let let everyone demonize themselves essentially. <laughs> Uh, with their own right. opinions to just have everything out there. I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that I feel like everyone's calling for uh, the media to portray right now. Uh, and arguably they, they are or aren't. There is something I think quite hopeful about that. I want to say one last thing by Hands Over the City, just because I was going to respond to something you guys were saying, but then we got off on another tangent. I think one of the reasons, you know, I like this movie and one place where I slightly connect it to other things that are going on, it definitely, you're right, comes out of the neorealism tradition. Although, to my mind, like, I, I like a lot of those neorealist movies, but they feel often a little more... They have a slightly more fairy tale quality or slightly more melodrama. Probably not all of yeah. them, but at least some of the ones I've seen. Definitely and more sentimental. Yeah, more sentimental. That's a better word for it, for sure. Um, so I like that it's kind of taking neorealism and then doing something that feels to me kind of modernist in its formal structure, where it's like things are kind of jumbled up and you're, you're responsible as the viewer for putting the pieces together. And in that way, it reminds me of my other favorite Italian director, or maybe favorite underappreciated Italian director from this era, which is Olmi, Armano Olmi, who I thought about doing for this podcast too, because his movie Ifidanzati and also his movie Il Posto are really great. And they, to me, they're like much more human, small scale stories. And I can see they're sort of more emotionally affecting for that reason. But that did seem to me like one sort of touchstone from the era that's doing something. I'm not sure which came first or second, but doing something a little bit similar with this kind of type of fractured storytelling or sort of putting maybe adopting neorealism to a moment of kind of like modern 
newsreel documentary style. So that was just one. You're definitely right. I sort of was putting him in the the, the lighter touch comic sort of vein, but but for sure, and especially the whole direction that that only went with his career is you know he never let the neorealism thing go. And I, yeah, he's definitely somebody else who's working in a similar vein stylistically, you know, making a very different type of movie. Although there's also the comedy of uh, of Italian bureaucracy and in those only films you're, you reference. Yeah, for sure. Posto, <laughs> especially. Yeah. yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to end, but I do kind of want to get into, Greg, your, your history with film and, and when you started to become uh, passionate about cinema and, uh, you know, how, how all that began. Well, I'm not sure if I know exactly why or how I became a film lover, buff. I remember going to the movie theater a lot with... My parents, especially my mom, in Boston, we'd always go to these kind of art house cinemas, and we saw actually a lot of um, '90s American independent film. I was really into that. I don't, I don't know why. When I was like a teenager, even younger than a teenager, maybe because it felt like it was, I don't know, teaching me about the world I was gonna move into at some point when I became in my, I don't know, 20 year old something. But I, I don't really know, like something switched at some point and I film as like a kind of large ongoing project or a huge body of work, like an ocean that you could kind of swim in forever, it sort of dawned on me a good deal later. And it just, it struck me as like this project to spend at least part of my life or one aspect of my life kind of swimming in. And I think one of the reasons is obviously film and fiction have a lot in common. There's a lot of, I mean, they're narrative art forms. And so it feels like a kind of cousin to what I do, but it's also not really what I do. And in that sense, I can have a very kind of unproblematic, just very loving and appreciating relationship with it where I don't feel like I'm too into who's doing what or where people's careers are at. I don't have to feel strange about liking or disliking things. Um, I just kind of get to love this form and it's very enriching and nourishing for me for my own work. It's somehow seeing different narrative strategies, seeing different ways that stories are told is like so exciting for me as a writer, but it also doesn't really like completely tax the same muscles. So after days of wrestling with words, I mean, I, some, I read a lot at that point, but sometimes it's just nice to move away from words into a different sort of storytelling realm. And I think, frankly, as probably a lot of fiction writers are, whether they admit it, I'm like very jealous of movies a lot of the time because I feel so visual in my imagination and I wish I had that capacity that films do to kind of bring you into the kind of emotional texture of moments with image and sound and not just with words, which is a much more sort of indirect way of conjuring those elements. And so there's sort of like this side of me that I think would have loved to work in film and, and be a filmmaker, but I also sort of knew maybe that I'm a little bit too peculiar and stubborn to like do whatever you would have to do in terms of dealing with all these people to actually, you know, have a career in film. It seems like a very different practice, but as a medium, I cannot kind of buttress my own feelings of excitement about storytelling more. And so I think that's a lot of what it is. It's not some like moment. I wish there were some moments like, oh, I saw, you know, this movie in 2006 and my life was never going to be the same. Um, it's also like, I don't know, film is just so, I, I have this feeling a little bit of like protectiveness, you know, with the kind of onslaught of TV and stuff. I feel like film is this like precious and underappreciated reservoir of culture that not only is sort of 
encapsulates in some way like the 20th century, but actually even supplants to some extent our own sense of the past and of history through, you know, becoming the kind of images and touchstones that we use to sort of remember by. And, you know, I don't know, I just love that this sort of near past, we have this kind of repository, this kind of annals through film of, and I think this is a lot of what maybe your podcast is about, partly looking specifically at the 60s, like you're kind of unearthing a moment in our history through film as the kind of medium of inquiry. And I don't know, I feel like the whole 20th century is kind of like that. It was like the century of film. I don't know, that's very exciting as a way to kind of learn about the past in the world. Yeah, what he said. No, for sure. I think for for me too, I mean, film is just, it's it's such a great way to look into psychology. Uh, and, and who people are and who you are. It's a great time to, to reflect on not only what is happening on the screen and what's happening to the characters consciously, subconsciously, but also what's happening within you as you're watching the film. There's just so many, there's so many angles to come at it from, from learning something, which of course you can get this for, through many art forms, but clearly we've chosen film as our art form, so... This was so much fun. Thanks for bringing this yeah. movie to our attention. This was a first watch for both me and Bart, so yes. that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not one that we may have... Well, I guess we, we'll still do an Ill Boom episode at some point, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. So That's There's a lot to talk jam. about there. You, you know, you had so many movies that you listed that you wanted to talk about that we'll, we'll, we'll have to have you back on at some point to, to talk about some of those others. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that because I felt really torn... But I was glad that you guys went with something that was a little more political, just because I've been spending a lot of time, basically since 2016, thinking about art and politics and how they intersect. And so that's just sort of been like a hobby horse for four or five years. So thank you for indulging that interest. Thank you. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.